to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll writes, No man has meant more to me in my adult life than Dr. Howard G. Hendricks, whom all of us know simply as Prof. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a sermon on prayer. The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. No one here tonight needs an exhortation to pray. Jesus said men ought always to pray and never to throw in the towel. The Apostle Paul said, pray without ceasing, without interruption, make it your spiritual breathing apparatus. James says we have not because we ask not. And we ask and receive not because we ask it amiss, that we may consume it upon our own lusts. But if your experience matches mine, the one area in your Christian life in which you are constantly shot down in flames is your prayer life. I've been a believer for 67 years. And I've struggled throughout my entire Christian life with prayer. Why? How do you account for this phenomenon? Well, I would like to remind you tonight, it is not the product of an accident. It's the product of satanic deception. You see, Satan does not mind if you study your Bible just so you don't pray. You'll become a smarter sinner, (laughs) but you won't become like Jesus Christ. You'll have more comprehension, more information, but not more transformation. Satan does mind, does not mind if you share your faith just so you don't pray. Because he knows if you don't that it's far more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. Satan does not mind if you become neurotically, compulsively active down at your local church or parachurch ministry just So you don't pray, because then you will be active, but not really accomplishing anything of permanent value. Tonight I want to recommend a personal study which could change the course of your life and your ministry. I want to recommend that you personally study the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if the Christian life is the life of Christ, that which the Holy Spirit is committed to reproducing you and me, 
then we need to spend more time mastering the master's light. As an educator, I am convinced that the process is often as important as the product. So tonight, I want to get you started, but I don't want to prevent the joy of personal discovery, because that's where the change will take place in your life as it has in mine. There are two questions we need to ask in studying the life of Christ. The first question is, how did Jesus Christ spend his time here on earth? I don't remind, need to remind an educated audience as this, that the gospel by Matthew sets forth Jesus as the king. Mark, Jesus as the servant. The gospel by John as Jesus, the Son of God. But the gospel by Luke is Jesus, the Son of Man. There are 15 occasions of prayer of Jesus Christ in his earthly life as recorded in the New Testament. Of those 15 occasions, 11 of them occur in the gospel by Luke, and not without reason. You see, in Luke, Jesus is featured in his humanity as the Son of Man. As such, he is the completely dependent one, the one with whom we can identify. Do you have a Bible or a New Testament? Let me launch you on the study. Turn in our Father's Word to Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, underline that, it's key to the timing. As he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Why was God the Father pleased with Jesus the Son? Well, ultimately, you don't get the explanation until you come to the book of Hebrews where you are informed that before Jesus invaded our planet, he paused on the threshold of heaven and said, Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God. God found all of his pleasure in the Son because the Son found all of his pleasure in doing the Father's will. And that's why we read in the New Testament that in every scene and circumstance of his life, he could say, I do always those things that are pleasing to thee. He prayed. And it was in the midst of his praying 
that you read this statement. Turn over to Luke chapter 5 and verse 15. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and pray. In fact, on 12 separate occasions in the Gospels, it was Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to a lonely place to pray. You see, the Holy Spirit is informing us that the private life of Jesus Christ is the secret of his public life. You show me a man, you show me a woman who is effective in their ministry for Jesus Christ in public, and I will show you a person who is far more effective behind the scenes in private. Their prayer life is their secret. In fact, that's the reason in chapter 11 that the disciples ask him to teach them to pray. It's the only thing they ever ask him to teach them. The reason every time they found him, they found him on his knees. And I think it was Andrew who said to Philip, Hey, Phil, I think that's a biggie. Why don't you ask him about it? And how richly endowed we are. Turn over to chapter 6 and verse 12. One of those days, what days? Look at the preceding verse. The religious leaders were furious. What a tame translation of the Greek text. It literally means to lose conscious control of oneself. They were bent out of shape. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Another of the Gospels tells you to put him to death. And when they decided that Jesus must go, he decided to choose a handful of men as his disciples. But I want you to know, Jesus went on out to a mountainside to pray and spent the entire night praying to God. The most critical events and decisions that Jesus had to make, he made after spending an entire night in prayer. In John 17, the Lord's Prayer, he says twice over, I pray for those you have given to me. By the way, the key to discipling and to mentoring. Don't ever attempt to disciple another individual. Don't ever attempt to mentor another person until you have bathed your choices in prayer and are convinced that man, that woman is the one that God wants me to build in to their life. You see, the more you see his earthly life, 
the more you are convinced prayer pervaded his life from beginning to end. From common things such as praying over the bread and the fish to a crisis such as he faced on the cross. From the ordinary to the extraordinary in public and in private. And you come to the conclusion prayer was not a part of his life. It was his life. It wasn't peripheral. It was paramount, not optional but essential. So to answer the question, what did Jesus do on earth? Jesus' life on earth was a life of prayer. But there's a second question that perceptive people will ask. And that is, what is Jesus doing now in heaven? I want you to look at two passages of scripture with me. The first one is found in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. Let me plug into the narrative at verse 22. Hebrews 7, 22. This is a book about superiorities. So the writer says, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better, a superior covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Ladies and gentlemen, every single time you and I pray, we need to remember we are entering a prayer meeting that is going on 24 hours a day. What is Jesus doing right now? He's praying for you, for you, for you, for you. And you have a classic illustration of it. In the life of Peter, over in Luke chapter 22, those famous words that Jesus addressed to this disciple, Simon, Simon, my father was a military man, very patriotic, he laid down stripes, I saw stars. <laughs> and I learned early on in the game. All my father had to do was to say, Howard, once. But if he ever said it twice, I was in the deepest trouble. See, Jesus is trying to get his attention. When he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. That is, so that the wheat will come to him and the shaft will go to Christ, to God. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. Please note, he's not praying that Peter will not fail. He's praying that his faith will not fail. And when you have turned back, when you're converted, when you do a 180, then strengthen your brothers. Did he do that? Well, have you ever read First and Second Peter? Everything you stereotype for Peter... 
Peter 4 is exactly the opposite of what you read in 1st and 2nd Peter. This man was radically changed by Jesus' prayer for him. The second passage I want you to look at briefly is Romans chapter 8. Verses that I often hear quoted, but I'm not sure we understand the significance. Again, let's start at verse 26. Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You identify with that? You ever feel so weak that you can't even pray? Well, he says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Do I ever identify with this? I spent all of my life with students. I am deeply involved in their life. And they come to me to pray about some of the most critical decisions of their life. And I am compelled to say, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to tell them to take it or to let it go. See, that's when the Holy Spirit, who took up his residence in you the moment you accepted Christ, comes into the picture. For he says the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. I was in a situation recently, I kid you not, I ran out of words. Right in the middle of the prayer. And I'm not exactly a person without words. I don't know what to pray. And I had this overwhelming realization that the Spirit of God is interceding within me, even though I cannot express. Now, why is that so great? Well, look at the end of that verse in Romans where he says he searches our hearts he knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will the spirit of God is a specialist on the will of God you don't know it he does now you put Hebrews and Romans together and you get the picture our representative, representative in heaven is Jesus Christ. And what's he doing? He's praying for us. Christ's representative on earth is the Holy Spirit. And what's he doing? He's praying in us. What did, have, did Jesus Christ do in his life on earth? He prayed. What's he doing now in heaven? He's praying. Then how can he take up his residence in my life and your life and not pray? See, that's the overwhelming conclusion. Now, it's true, you can do more after you pray. But you cannot do more until you have prayed. And I am wondering, is it, impo is it possible that we are trying to live a supernatural life? 
We're trying to sustain a supernatural ministry, but we're doing it by natural means alone, and we can't figure out why it won't work. So if I had only one thing to say to the men and women here who are students at the Moody Bible Institute is, you're going to get the best education you can ever get. Don't trust it. You people at the Institute are often resplendently gifted. I have students of that type, and honestly, I stop and think to myself, I don't have any gifts compared with the gifts that my students have. Don't trust your giftedness. And after a period of time, as many of you older people, you got experience under your belt great asset, provides wisdom. Don't trust it. Now God will use your education. He will use your experience. He will use your giftedness. But not if you trust those alone. It's a supernatural task. Now let's take that incredible truth and relate it to your life and mine. There are three lessons you can learn from the prayer life of Christ. Number one, learn that wherever prayer focuses, power falls. One of the things largely missed in the study of prayer in the scripture is that what the Bible has to say about prayer is largely addressed to groups, not to individuals. Does that mean that we don't pray individually? Of course not. But we've lost the impact of prayer when we meet with a group of God's people and agree together to trust God for his will. A number of years ago, I was so burdened about this, I decided I was going to use the discipleship group I had of 12 men, male stu students, and we were going to try an experiment. So I came to class one day and I said, guys, we're going to do something we've never done before. Before you come back next week, I want you to bring a three-by-five card, having spent the entire week Asking, who are the people that you know who are least likely to come to Christ? Maybe a business associate, may have been someone who was a roommate in college, maybe a mother, a father, one of your peers, your siblings. As I recall, the students came with 69 names of people who, in their judgment, were least likely to come to Christ. And we covenanted as a group to pray every single day for four months. At the end of those four months, 37 of those individuals had come to faith through no other means but prayer. 
One of them was the greatest hellraiser that Texas A&M University ever had. I gave his testimony a number of years ago at the Moody Founders Week, and a guy came up afterwards and he said, Oh, no, he couldn't come to Christ. I said he did. I can't believe it. He wasn't calling me a liar. He just didn't believe I was telling the truth. <laughs> and at his own expense, flew from Chicago to Dallas to see if I was telling the truth. And when he met this guy, he literally was so overwhelmed, he fell at his feet and grabbed him and said, Oh, God, I can't believe it. But it's true. Ladies and gentlemen, we have not begun to understand the power of prayer. A group of two, three, four of you in your church who dare to meet on a regular basis. We have a phenomenal group of high school kids in one of our churches. They got so burdened for the condition of that church that they agreed that they would meet every Wednesday morning at 6 o'clock to pray for the church. So they asked the elders if they could have the church open. And of course the elders had to go into a committee <laughs> to make that critical decision. And after the brilliance of pulling their minds, they came to the conclusion, you can't use it. So the kids go down the street to a pagan who runs a restaurant, and they go in and say, hey, man, we promise we won't tear your place up. We just need a place to pray. To what? <laughs> pray. You want to use my restaurant to pray? Yeah, six o'clock every Wednesday morning. Sure. Fantastic. In fact, I'll give you coffee and donuts. And one day, one of the elders shows up by accident. and finds his high school kids praying in this restaurant. And God used it to shame a group of 14 elders. And as a result of those high school kids, that church has never been the same since. Where prayer focuses, power falls. You know where it needs to begin? Are you married? It needs to begin in the smallest group between a husband and a wife. I just came from a men's conference. Guy came up and he said, would you spend some time with me? I said, sure. So we sat down, we were talking, he was having problems in his Christian life. He said, let me ask you a question. I said, do you and your wife ever pray? Head drop. He said, no. I said, how long have you been married? 
He said, 28 years? He said, you're an elder in the church for 26, and you've never prayed together. You think that's an exception? I got news for you. We all know the data. And by the way, it's higher in the evangelical community. One out of every two who marry will end in divorce. Try this one on for size. For every couple that gets together on a regular basis as a couple and prays, the average for divorce is one out of 1,500. But we have none because we ask not. And our marriages are a disgrace to a present, to a pagan world. Well, there's a second lesson we can learn, and that is we need to learn to utilize your available time. See, I have so many people who give me excuses. I could write a book on it. I think maybe Moody Press would be interested in it. <laughs> well, I, I don't have time. You know, the best way to get universal conviction, I mean like that, is just ask one question in his question. How many of you have spent hours this week in prayer and everybody disappears under the seats? <laughs> That's not the issue. The issue is, what are you doing about the time you've got? So, well, for example, I say, you drive to work? Well, every day I drive to work. Say, <laughs> so you enjoy it? No, no. They cut in front of me. Hey, cut that out. <laughs> Lose your sanctification right in the process. Say, <laughs> so you know what to do? Spend your time going to work praying, and when somebody cuts in front of you, wave at them blow every circuit in their head. <laughs> Today, everybody's got to be physically fit. But every time I think about jogging, I lie down and it goes away. <laughs> got a few brothers and sisters here, I can see. <laughs> now I'm diabetic. And I got to walk every day to survive. I walk three miles every day. It takes me about 40 minutes. And I can remember as if God verbally said to me one day, Hendrix, tell me once more that you don't have enough time to pray. I got 40 minutes. I told you this prayer is powerful stuff. <laughs> I got 40 minutes every day. And as in your driving, I don't have to stop and say, well, house is still there. I have just the privilege of talking to the Father. It's revolutionized my prayer life. How about waiting? Do you ever wait in a doctor's office? 
This is better. I went to see my endocrinologist some time ago. I waited so long, I walked out the door after waiting for two hours. Threw the whole thing into a tissy because they kept searching for me in all of the rooms. Where is he? He was here. I wait hours and hours for planes. The only people who believe the announcements they make are the people who don't travel. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you there will be a slight delay. I get my violin out. Six hours later, as two weeks ago, the plane takes off. What a wonderful time God has provided for prayer. See, take advantage of the time you have. Before I left, I have a layman who calls me every single week to ask me where I'm going. He said, where are you going this week? I said, I'm going up to Chicago. Oh, really? What are you going to do? Well, I'm going up there to the uh, Moody Founders Week conference. Oh, people at all those Chicago people, man, they need prayer. <laughs> and just like that, he starts praying over the phone. Guy probably has one of the most effective witnesses for Christ because he buys up every moment and sends up sky telegrams on behalf of people in need. There's one final lesson, and that is believe God. And this is a learned thing. We need to learn to believe God for the impossible. See, with most of us, prayer is sort of figuring out what God can do without embarrassment and then asking Him to do it. But you never want to pray for the impossible. One guy said, what would happen if it didn't come? Well, said, that's great faith, bro. <laughs> Dallas Seminary was founded in 1924. And you don't have to be too brilliant a historian to know that in five years they were plunged into the middle of the Great Depression with the greatest financial crisis in their history. So bad that they felt they were compelled to close the doors of the seminary unless the money came in. And they set a particular day. And that day they met for prayer. And in that prayer meeting was Dr. Harry Ironside, the pastor of this church, who used to come to the seminary and teach us every year the Word of God. And right in the middle of the prayer, in typical Ironside fashion, he said, Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. Please sell some of them and send us the money. Well, at the very time he's praying, a Fort Worth businessman shows up at the business office and says, I just sold two carloads of cattle, and here's the check. 
And a gal looked at the check, it was for the exact amount that they were asking God for. And they went into the prayer meeting, this gal, so nervously she knocked on the door. Dr. Chafer, the founder of the school, came. She gave him the check. He took one look at it and said, Harry, God sold the cattle. You know, we have an awesome God. I know that's overworked. Sometimes the kids tell me it's awesome, and really it's awful. But he is awesome. And we've existed from that day to this, and so has Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College and all kinds of institutions, all kinds of ministries have been sustained for 50, 100, 150 and more years just because somebody believes there's a God who specializes in the impossible. Andrew Murray said it. Let us beware of weakening the word with our human wisdom. What a word. Can I leave you with one final question? Is what we are doing really worth doing if we can do it without prayer? Father in heaven, we pray that you will do what we cannot do. We can't popularize prayer. We can't promote it. It's not until we come to the place where we realize our need is not partial, but total, that we will ever take prayer seriously. So our Father, the example of our Lord on earth and in heaven, and now living within us provides true spiritual motivation. And we pray that you will burn within our hearts the incredible privilege that you have given us in this generation. And that is the privilege of being men and women of prayer. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.